0: Uh, When I turned 30, I moved to Mexico for a year Mm -hmm. and traveled all throughout the country, interviewing everyone whose path I crossed, trying to recover some sense of what had been lost in my family's migration so many years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, I experienced many amazing things there. It was really an exciting time to be in Mexico. It was right before the drug war uh, really went in full force. And at the time it seemed like things could go many different directions and there was a point where it just seemed like democracy could potentially win out and, and freedom and indigenous rights could win out. It was a really exciting time to be there in 2005, mm-hmm. um, leading to the devastating presidential election, which began the assault on the drug war. Um, anyway, so, so that was an amazing year. And one of the many things I realized in that experience was that No, even if I moved to Mexico for the rest of my life, I would never actually be Mexican. (laughs) Uh, Because really what binds a culture, what binds a community, of course, is shared memory. And I don't have those shared memories. So that's what got this next book, the new book that just came out. Um, that was the idea that sparked this is, well, what I am most of all is a resident of the borderland. I am a woman who walks between worlds. So why don't I just return to my own community and see what's happening there? Yeah. So, yeah. So in 2007, I moved back home to Corpus Christi, Texas. And I was just astonished by what had changed. I hadn't really been back home in about 10 years, uh, for any considerable length of time. And it was just crazy to see what was happening. They were on the verge of building this huge border wall. Um, the the drug war had really come to South Texas. Um, South Texas had essentially become a graveyard, uh, with so many passages, uh, ending in death for so many undocumented migrants. And, um, I just began I grabbed my pen and started taking notes
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, you know and it's an amazing piece it's just um, it's fantastic the book is all the agents and Saints uh, dispatches from the US borderlands and it's out of the University of North Carolina Press and this book for me Stephanie was what you gave to me with this book was I think Sort of what you gave to yourself, because the story that you're telling about the um, inability to reconnect with your culture as a Mexican is sort of I mean, it's it's if it's true for you, it's true for me, it's true for so many um, Chicanos that are Chicanos that claim Chicano mismo or don't claim it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When I was on tour with Mexican Enough, I started feeling like I needed to start a support group, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually, I was really very frightened uh, when I first started going out on on um, on extensive book, book tours, uh, even with Around the Block. I was really worried that uh, I would be chastised for even claiming to be Mexican, because I I don't look Mexican. At the time, I didn't even speak Spanish. Um, I really had a hang up about that. But then what I found is when I got up in front of an audience and began to talk about how humiliating it is to not speak Spanish and how guilty I feel over not looking more Mexican, yet having been the recipient of many benefits of it, I was really shocked to see folks in the audience who, in my eyes, were sort of personified Chicanos, I mean, just like the the embodiment of Chicanidad, mm-hmm. would be, you know, really nodding and really looking like they were feeling me. And uh, afterward would come up and be like, thank you for telling my story. And I'm like, wait, you don't feel Mexican enough? How can you not feel Mexican <laughs> enough? They're like, I don't feel Mexican enough. You know, I mean, it was just like, <laughs> I mean, nobody did. Nobody does. Uh, which is fascinating to me. And, uh, and, and tragic. And it's the same thing that I've found also in, in, you know, Native American communities. I mean, mm. and there's a reason for that, right? Like these cultures were, were stripped from us just as they were in the former Soviet Union, just as they are in China and certain parts of China. Um, this is like a worldwide phenomenon of colonialism. Um, and sometimes colonialism comes from a foreign
1: agent and sometimes it comes from our own. You, exactly. And, you know, I was talking with an old Chicano and in, um, in w- when I do some organizing in my hometown and He's an artist, and he does these really great um, pictures of, like, skulls and all this stuff. Well, now skulls are, like, being appropriated by everyone, like the sugar skulls for the other muertos and all that stuff. Anyway, I was talking with him, and he Mm -hmm. remembers my parents when they were young because they all grew up in the same place. And my parents, my dad was an old gangster, like an old cholo, right? There's a picture Ah. of him. At the um, at the middle school with a joint in his mouth against a wall <laughs> and a button up, you know, a Pendleton and stuff. And um, and I'm talking to this guy, Carlos, and he's like, he's like, you know, Rochelle, it's really sad because only in one generation, from your father's generation to your generation, our our culture is gone. Our lowriders, our Pendletons, are you know our dances, our all of these different things are gone or fading or non existent where non existent where we are in Hollister, San Benito County, California. And, you know, I looked around me and I was really shocked to to be able to agree with him and realize that all of those images from my childhood were suddenly just not there anymore. And um and now it was a different it, it's, it's a different breed of, of sort of Chicanos that there are different desires, different consumer items, different ways to live, and, and, and they're sort of lost. So that was, I mean, it mm-hmm. just hits so close to home, all of this assimilation and um, colon, colon, colonialism and all this other stuff. It just really hits hard.
0: Yeah, it does.
1: So let's get talking about your book, though. Tell me how this project, oh, well, you told me how the project started, but tell me about tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. So basically I come home in 2007 uh, after having been gone for, uh, I, I graduated in 1997 and then I was gone for most of the, the 10 years uh, living in various parts of the world and in, in the United States. And I come back home and, and, and I, I left very deliberately. I left Corpus Christi and I was like, you know, no, I didn't even glance back in the rearview mirror. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to leave. I was raging with wanderlust. I wanted to get, go far and wide and, um, and so returning home, um, I had this impression that I was from just this kind of peaceful, boring town. And I arrived to find that actually it was the crossroads of this major international news story, uh, mm-hmm. with so many border depths and with the border wall, um, being erected. And I was quite fascinated by this. And so notes are really how I, interact with the world. It's how I make sense of the world. It's how I understand the world. I'm just this neurotic, neurotic note taker. And I began doing a series of road trips around South Texas with my good friend, Greg. And he uh, and I just were seeing really, really wild, powerful things. And um, I was thinking that I was, actually, initially, I thought that I was writing a book about solitude and silence, Mm -hmm. and I was working toward that, and then increasingly came, no, this is a really valuable time to be here to document what's happening, but the book really, really crystallized in my mind when I just so happened to land a job at St. Lawrence University in upstate New York, and it's actually 18 miles south of the Canadian border, Mm -hmm. and as soon Mm -hmm. as I arrived there, so that was like a year-long gig, and as soon as I arrived, I realized that I was, um, you know, just kind of looking at the map, like, where am I? You know, <laughs> as soon as I got there, it was kind of shocking, like you know, Amish uh, people were, you know, coming by in like horse and buggies. I mean, I was like in the middle of nowhere and uh, also in a very, very cold place. So I was like, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to survive this year ahead of me? And I uh, looking at the map and I saw, oh, wow, there's a Mohawk nation here. And that was exciting to me because I've actually never lived um, in any decent proximity to a native nation before uh, anywhere I've lived in the world. And so that was quite exciting to me. And um, and then I realized that this was actually the nation that uh, was supposedly the inspiration behind the 2008 movie Frozen River mm. by, wow. by uh, Courtney Hunt. And that was a tremendously powerful movie. Um, it it had some very haunting scenes that have never escaped my mind. Um, just for those who haven't seen it yet, it's a movie uh, that takes place at Akwesasne, the Mohawk Nation, supposedly. And it is about um, the tendency to... Uh, Use the St. Lawrence River, which freezes solid at certain parts of the year, Mm -hmm. as a way to smuggle um, uh, uh, people and guns and drugs. And so I was quite fascinated by this movie. And uh, as soon as I realized that Akwesasne was like a 45-minute drive away, I started driving out there. And um, I was really astounded by the sense of deja vu. I mean, literally, like, every Mohawk I met would tell me a story that was like my Thea had told me last week, you know? <laughs> it was. Um, I just kept on hearing, like, these same stories, the same tragedies, so the mm-hmm. same tragedies of, you know, militarization of the border, of, of uh, the fact that so many Mohawks had lost their language uh, due to Indian residential school, which was, like, a century-long attempt to completely... Uh, I mean, Indians today refer to it as a cultural genocide. I mean, the languages were literally like beaten out of the kids. Right. Uh, they were not allowed to use any of their ceremonial uh, objects. They weren't allowed to practice ceremonies. I and mean, they were just, these kids were so t- tremendously traumatized. And those stories certainly reminded me of stories that my mother has told me about you know, 100 brothers getting their mouth washed out with soap, you know, for speaking Spanish or getting getting their, their hands smacked for speaking Spanish with rulers. Um, not quite, not nearly as severe as the Mohawks um, and, and so many indigenous people, but, um, but something similar. There was a violence to remove the languages. Um, you know, just like Corpus Christi is surrounded by Petrochemical refineries that are slowly poisoning so many of our marginalized communities. The same thing is happening at Aquasazni. They're surrounded by three major multinational corporations that have long been poisoning the rivers and streams. Uh, that has decimated their traditional lifestyle. Um, just again and again and again. So many similarities. So many similarities. And you know, before I knew it, my notebook was out and I was frantically taking notes. And then it became very clear to me that this was a book about about borderlines and borderlands and what it means to inhabit the spaces in between.
1: Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about what you were saying um, with regards to the oil refinery business. We had a really close call here in um, San Benito County and also in Monterey County. Um, fracking was try- there. Were there's a big giant Monterey shale, and so the fracking industry was a sort of. Um, about to take over and we we want a measure to ban fracking in the area but you know one of the biggest one of the biggest proponents for fracking to come and the biggest um sort of advertising point for the fracking industry was jobs and it was all um sort of centered at the mexican the chicano and the spanish speaking community like you have to let fracking come because it will mean jobs for you. And I think that this is a really complicated point. And what I like about your book is when you talk about the the industry that exists in Corpus Christi and in Texas and the, this industry of oil refineries and so on, it's doing all this horrible environmental damage. But then you have family members who are employed by these places. Yeah, yeah all my
0: uncles, uh, all of them work. Um, well, but that's, what's also so interesting, right? These are uncles who, um, had they been born just a little bit earlier, probably would have been vaqueros, cowboys on the King Ranch right. and then the King Ranch got corporatized. And then, so all the Mexican workers were sort of kicked out and then a lot of them went to do refinery work. So, I mean, the, the, you know, the three major job opportunities that are in South Texas, um, for folks that don't have oper- a lot of academic opportunities are, Um, You can work at an oil refinery. You can work for the Border Patrol or you can sell drugs. Yeah. And all three of those are so devastating for our community. Um, But yet those are those are the three industries where you are guaranteed to make a hell of a salary.
1: Yeah, I have I have many cousins who live in in Arizona, in Nogales and um, border towns over there who are Border Patrol agents. And it's really important for them and their families. Their families are very well taken care of they have homes their children their daughters have opportunity for education and so on and so forth because it's a working class it's a higher higher working class job and a higher working class position for them and so it's this really complicated space really complicated yeah and also really beautiful and that's what i i think is really important about your stories about the borderland is it's not just it's not just sort of this like um well, let's talk about the border and how politicized we can get about um, its position. It's about people. The stories are about people and about how people interact with the border and how they survive. Yeah. Yes. Which is really important. Mm-hmm. Um. So I wonder if you would read some some. I'm, I'm You're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area okay. and beyond um, the Bay at KKUP.org. org. Yeah. Tonight's show is Out of Our Minds with me, Poetita, and I'm interviewing Stephanie Elizondo-Greist. Please remember that KKUP is community radio, so that means that we are supported by you and not by any other form of money or grants or commercials or anything. You, you the listener, keep us going. So here's Stephanie reading from her book.
0: So I'm going to read to you all from Chapter 4, The Activist and the Ordinance. Susie Canales was cruising the back roads of Corpus Christi with her sister Cindy when something sinister caught their eye at the side of the road. They pulled over and retraced their route, walking against traffic. Though still within the city limits, they were far from any residential neighborhood. Down the knoll and beyond some trees, they could make out a pond-sized body of darkness. Cindy ran back to lock the car. Don't go down there without me. Naturally, Susie did. The water was thick as sludge in the color of scorched coal.
1: It exuded an
0: odor Susie couldn't place. Like tar, but danker. Cautiously, Susie stuck a foot upon the mud bank surrounding it. Her shoe sank a few inches, but it seemed firm enough to hold her. What could it be? Given all the oil refineries in the area, Sitco, Flynn Hills, Valero, the possibilities were endless. It could be crude oil, hydraulic fracturing fluid, drill cuttings, petroleum waste. She took another step. It could be a benzene bath, a carcinogenic stew, a toxic... Suddenly, she was submerged in it. Chest high, a scream escaped. Sludge filled her open mouth, and in her panic, she swallowed. The darkness slithered down her throat. She flailed her limbs until they found something solid beneath, a pipeline of sorts. She clenched it between her feet. Seeing her sister struggle... Cindy half ran, half tumbled down the knoll toward the bank. Finding a grassy spot, she extended her hand, little sister to big sister. Growing up, these women weren't especially close. Susie had been the baby for seven years until Cindy wailed along. Susie had resented her ever since. Only now, in their forties, were they starting to connect. Now that they had lost their older sister, Diana, now that they had formed a coalition to fight what might have killed her. The sisters locked eyes and gripped hands. On the count of three: one, two. But Susie's hands were too slick; she slipped deeper into the sludge. Cindy screamed with frustration before reading out what's more. Again, she lost her grip. Susie sank further into the murk. The third try. This is it. They stared hard into each other's eyes. This is too much. They burst out laughing. That's when Cindy's adrenaline surged, cl- clutching her sister by both wrists. She yanked her from the swamp. The two stumbled backward onto the mud bank where Susie lay in a heap. I swallowed some. I swallowed some. As baptisms go, Susie's was gruesome, but fitting. Here was a woman who had dedicated her life to fighting oil companies. And she nearly drowned in one of their pits.
1: Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the point at which they laugh is so like... <laughs> yeah <I know. laughs> so you know,
0: that's something that I have found so miraculous about mexicanos in general and Tajanos in particular mm-hmm. is the sense of humor there is always a sense of humor in the face of tremendous tragedy, there is always laughter, and that is extraordinary to me <laughs>
1: yeah it is it's really it's really funny, actually. My my daughter, we were at a library time and she's really a chill baby. And we went to the library and this day she was just not having it. And she started like screaming her head off about who knows what. And I'm <laughs> and I'm laughing like I could just <laughs> laugh at this <laughs> little baby. And I'm looking around me like I wonder if these people think I'm crazy because I'm laughing that my baby is screaming. <laughs> <'cause> she... <laughs> there was nothing I could do. She just wanted to scream her head off. <laughs> Yeah. It's just like this whole like
0: ni attitude and you just you have to laugh at that.
1: So yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so so um tell me a little bit about Susie's work and this part of the book. Uh Susie Canales is such a hero.
0: She has been single handedly advocating on behalf of the communities that live surrounding what's called Refinery Row. Refinery Row is about 15 miles of uh, just near the Corpus Christi city limits um, of oil and gas refineries and petrochemical industries. And there are unusually high rates of illnesses along these. Um, along this wall, this this wall of refineries. Um, however, it's been really difficult to get a medical study that is accepted by both activists and by the corporations um, that uh, proves the link between the two, between the unusually high rates of asthma and cancer and birth defects, and the list just goes on and on, and the oil refineries themselves. And so Susie has just single-handedly taken this on herself because she's convinced that her older sister died um, from breast cancer at the age of, I believe, 41, 42, you know, an incredible young age. Right. Uh, she believes that that came from the fact that her family lived atop a toxic waste dump. Right. And she grew up there. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, well, it's stories like this in the book that really draw me in over and over again, and especially the fact that you find these amazing women. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love the story about uh the Bail Bonds woman. She's phenomenal. That was actually one story. I mean, I
0: love the written words so much, but when I met her, I'm like, I really should be a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> I mean, this woman on film, I can't even I can't even imagine. She was so fabulous. Yes, yes. So this is uh Sophie Boykin and she's this spectacular woman, um, a French woman um, from Bordeaux who had this really glamorous life. She was working for the French embassy and just living all over the world in Dakar and Rio de Janeiro and just so happened to fall in love with an oil man uh, in Houston, Texas. And, um, and they lived together and had some children and you know, had a really happy life. And then he passed away and she wound up um, marrying then her best friend who is a watermelon farmer in Falfurias, Texas. <laughs> So she moved down there. So this very glamorous French woman moves to Palfurias, Texas, which is a town of, like, 5,500, um, largely Tejano. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, there's a very small percentage of white landowners there, ranchers. And these, these men have big, big ranches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, like, a, um, a certain population of Palfurias, a lot of them are white, but there are some some Chicano landowners out there as well. Um, and then there's um, a large population that actually is... Um working for the Border Patrol, and then the rest of the population. I mean, obviously, there are, there are many different kinds of jobs in Falfurias, but um, quite a large percentage of people in Falfurias are believed to participate in the underground economies of drug trafficking and human trafficking. Right. And right. so uh, so Sophie kind of grasped this rather quickly and was like, oh, all right, so this is the business out here, so I will I will, I will, will join in. <laughs> and so she opened up a bill bond agency, and uh, it's quite funny. She called it Selena's. Because she knows that um, all Tejanos are crazy about Selena, but um, to avoid a lawsuit, she spelled it differently with an I instead of uh, two (laughs) E's. And so she and her, her co-worker, Sylvia, who is Tejana, um, they run out and um, bring all of these drug dealers, small, you know, smaller town drug dealers, small, right. smaller time drug dealers, rather. Um, they get them out of jail. And uh, and she, for a while, when it was still legal, would also do her own bounty hunting. So this French woman would get put a taser into her purse and uh, with her little high heels and a business suit would go out and... Uh, <laughs> Find these guys and bring them back in. I mean it's insane. It's really uh you you wouldn't believe it's possible, but then when you see her and hear her really husky voice and uh you're just like, God, I wanna go along, you know. Six times.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Well you took us along with that. That was an amazing that was just an amazing piece. Um <laughs> You're listening to KKUP Cupertino, 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area. This is Poetry Radio, uh, but for now it's not poetry. It's going to be some music. So here's Los Fabulosos Cadillacs. Here we go. listening to KKUP Cupertino and I've got an interview with Stephanie Elizondo Greist going on and it's ready to go to the next track. But before that, I wanted to quickly announce an email I received from um, Poetry Center San Jose. Poetry Center wants to announce that they are sponsoring the Red Wheelbarrow Poetry Prize and Alan Bass is going to be the final judge of that prize. So if you are interested in getting your poem published and becoming a prize winner, then you should go to uh, maybe just Google Red Wheelbarrow uh, Poetry Prize. And you'll probably find information that way. It's also available through Submittable. So then you would just enter Red Wheelbarrow um, for that. So yeah, that's that. And let's get back to this interview because it's super fantastic. And her book, All the Agents, her book, Stephanie Elizondo Greist's book, All the Agents and Saints is the kind of book that you need to go and get. And I'm donating my copy to the Watsonville Library. So after I'm done with it, which should be in about one week, it will be there. But if you need it faster than one week, which I think you should, you should get it faster than one week, then you should go out and grab it because I believe it is out on and shel- shelves right now. So here's Stephanie Elizondo-Greist and uh, we're continuing this interview with her. So here we go. I do want to talk about a really difficult part of the book um which is this story of the of the woman that is found dead on the rancher's land. Yes that sticks with you for the, for this whole section. Yes.
0: yes. So in 2012 um there was a uh, a really terrible um spat of deaths in Brooks County, Texas, which is quite near it's part of Falfurias. And uh, 129 bodies were discovered um, in just one year. And that is not much more than what were found that year in all of Arizona. Mm -hmm. So it was just... It was, it was horrendous. And during the summer, when temperatures got up to like 110, 115 degrees, there were two to three, sometimes even four bodies found a day oh. um, by, by a rancher out in Brooks County, this one small little county, tiny little county. And so this was a story that I'd been following. And I was really lucky to meet um, to meet uh, an officer named Danny Babila. Who was very kind, and I'd interviewed him several times. And it just so happened that I was with him doing an interview when he got the call that a body had just been discovered. And he looks up at me and is like, "You got a weak stomach?" Mm. And um, I, I, I do, <laughs> but that is yeah. not something you want to say in that moment. And I said, "I can, you know, you can take it. I can take it," which is a boldface lie. And uh, he allowed me to go with him. Uh, to go on a recovery, and wow, it was uh, definitely the hardest experience I've ever had as a as a journalist, as a reporter, as a writer, as a human being. And we uh, ventured out uh, several miles into a ranch. Um, actually, started doing some off roading at one point because it was really, really deep in the ranch. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, and there was we had an entourage of a border patrol agent, a justice of the peace. Um, and a representative of the funeral home. And uh, and then, of course, uh, some workers from the ranch. And we walked out and um, saw a woman. And she had been out, they estimate, about three days. Mm-hmm. And was <sighs> in quite a state, um, laying on her back. And um, there was a bottle of water, a small bottle of water next to her. She had a cell phone inside of her jeans pocket, and I believe twenty seven dollars and uh, no identification noticeable on her and it was um, really something that i I don't think I'll ever lose um, and I it's something that's really propelled me forward. I mean if I was an immigration uh, activists before this. I mean, it's just made me take a really like lifelong commitment to to doing something. Um, I, I, you know, we don't know what happened to her. Uh, there was b- basically the the police and the border patrol spanned out for literally less than a minute, um, looking for evidence. And if unless there's something really, really obvious, like you know, a hatchet sticking out of her head, um, mm-hmm. it has to be mm. something very graphic, um, very, very obvious uh, for her to be for her cause of death to be anything other than. And this is something that just drives me insane. Um, under cause of death, it's listed as hiking through ranch illegally. Oh. And that is how uh, they are all documented as uh, hiking through ranch illegally. That was the cause of death, um, and just that using that word illegal, even in the moment of death, is just it's
1: incredible to me. Awesome. Yeah, it's like it's—it's it's such a dehumanizing point of um, existence. Completely. Oh, yeah. Jeez. No. Um, that section of the book just—I, I mean, I just—I oh, cry just thinking about it. Um, yeah. But can you? Can you read – first, can I have you read your vignette on beginning on Chapter 9 about that, and then we'll go back to the discussion about being a writer, which is on page 108 in regards to this piece.
0: Sure. Okay. Chapter 9, The Woman in the Woods. I see her everywhere now. My friend Santa had warned me her spirit could latch onto my shoulder. But the woman in the woods seems to have emblazoned my corneas instead. For months afterward, she is the prism through which I view almost everything. I see her in dark spaces, like the corners of closets, but also in white spaces, like unadorned walls. I see her between the pages of books and flickering across computer screens. I see her at night when she wards off sleep. Though I heard scores of traumatic border crossing stories while researching my last book, hers is the one I cannot release despite knowing only its end. Maybe she was escaping war or the ghosts of war, such as the ones that ravaged Guatemala and El Salvador. Maybe she was fleeing natural disaster, like the hurricane that obliterated much of Honduras, or social disaster, like the Mara Salvatrucha, which has infiltrated much of Las Americas. The murderous gang could have been pressuring her husband or son to traffic drugs across the border. They could even have been cajoling her. Or maybe she came for love, her sister was in the United States. Her cousin was in the United States. Her absolutely favorite Theo. Her husband was here. Her life was here, she was convinced. Whatever the push-pull, war, disaster, violence, family, hope, it must have been fierce, tremendously fierce, if it propelled her to gather all of the money she could raise or borrow and relinquish it to a stranger. Whatever her thought process, whatever her reasoning, her conclusion must have been that possibly dying in El Norte was better than living on at home. And so she said goodbye to her mother and father, her siblings and cousins, all the tias and abuelas who helped raise her. She said goodbye to the friends whom she grew up with, her classmates and co-workers, the neighbors who lived down the road. She said goodbye to her lover and possibly even her children, then summoned all of the courage within and boarded a bus heading north. Traveling across her homeland, she must have paused to take in one last sunset across her Ancestral sky Eat one last papusa that our mother had made One last mango picked From her backyard tree No matter where she came from Traveling across Mexico probably seemed worse First there was jungle followed by mountains and rivers And desert all infested with terrifying men Trafficking drugs and guns and people Mexican immigration officials Patrolled the highways Street gangs traversed the trains And swindlers prowled the bus stations Yet somehow she avoided them Chances are, she had a coyote to guide her. But if she didn't, or if she didn't, he'd already abandoned her. She probably hired one at the border. He wouldn't have been hard to find. He saw her shuffling around the bus terminal, with her flowing black hair and her skinny black jeans, and he raised an eyebrow with interest. He convinced her he knew the way. He ensured her he could be trusted. Houston, no problem. I got a group of 43 there last night. Los Angeles? That's easy. I was there a week ago. Something in his cocksure voice reminded her of her long-lost Theo. Something said he was safe. Maybe she crossed into the United States by raft in the dark of night. Current racing, cold water slapping her face. Maybe she crossed by folding herself into the trunk of a car, or by squeezing between shipping containers in an 18-wheeler. Maybe she crossed by wading through sandy desert. However she did it, the odds were formidable. About a thousand people are caught each day along the 2,000-mile border, and either detained or sent back home. Yet every day, unknown hundreds, or thousands more, slipped through. One day, or night, one of those lucky border crosses was her. The triumph she must have felt must have been extraordinary. El otro lado, the other side. wherever she, Whatever she came for, she must have imagined it would be waiting there, right across la linea. Her mother or brother or lover would be standing there, arms outstretched, ready to receive her, or else that cleaning or sewing or child-sitting job she'd heard about. The woman would finally allow her family to buy that house, pay off those debts, finance that car, and splurge in a dollar's quinceanera while she was at it. Her new boss would be there, ready to stuff her pockets with Ringo dollars. But she probably did not realize. What she couldn't begin to fathom was that however far she had traveled, she was still only halfway to her destination. The border is wide. The border is vicious. Her crossing had just begun.
1: Oh, geez. Thank you. Thank you. And that is... Um, and you go on to talk about how it it doesn't end. I mean, it ended for this woman. This is... Obviously, this story is a sort of imaginative space. Um, but it doesn't stop for her. And doesn't stop for immigrants who cross. Once they get into the United States, there are still... Tons and tons of places where they are being um, exploited and used, and uh, their families are being exploited as well. Correct? Exactly. Yes. You think that
0: I mean it's just so tremendous to cross the U.S. Mexico border. It is. It is. It's just such an astounding human feat. And when you get across, you're like, "I am set. I am free." But in fact, you're just halfway there. Uh, from there, you usually get shuffled into a. Um, into a um, stash house and the stash houses in south texas are becoming these incredibly incredibly demonic frightening places um there was actually an incident uh just when i was uh, researching this um let's see let me find some stats um, in fiscal year 2012, law enforcement busted 237 stash houses in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, and uh, right around the time that I was there, they had just found uh, one home that had like an insane number of people um, stepped inside. Let's see, how many were there? There were, like, there were over 140 people that were inside of this house that, you know, like a a family home, Mm -hmm. essentially. Um, So, you know, so just at every single stage, um, this is becoming more and more terrifying and, um, and deadly. Um, you know, it used to be stash houses would keep like a normal number of people, like five, ten, and, you know, you could, you would have a bed, you would have like a blanket, you would be fed real food. Um, now they just stack them in so that they're sleeping standing up or they're taking turns sleeping, um, sleeping in rows. Um, they're given tortillas, if that. And um, what's also happening is that some, some of them are being kidnapped once they make it to the stash house and they are um, asked to give, you know, so the the coyotes these are, coyotes used to be um, men who just kind of happened to know the routes and would take you across for like a thousand bucks Um, just ten years ago it was that simple Mm -hmm. but now Mm -hmm. um, coyotes are run by these major transnational cartels um, who try to terrorize you at every opportunity essentially and so um, what will happen in these stash houses? They have all of your information, and so while you're being kept in a in a room that's completely filled to capacity, uh, they will be calling your parents and saying that, oh, you know, your son just had an accident. He's in the hospital. You know, we need eight hundred dollars to get him out, to buy his medicine, to get a bone set. And um, the families will find a way. This, these are often very, very desperately poor families. They will run out and run to their neighborhood and go get little collections from everybody and wire these $800 to this coyote that's just totally lied mm. um, oh. That things like that happen all of the time uh, so so first of all you have to make it through the stash house and the stash house you can sometimes stay there for you know weeks you can be raped there, you will surely not be fed there, um, you will be with so many people you will be scared there uh, and then slowly they began taking people from the stash house and um, in south Texas the next major border wall they have to face is the, um, the Falfurias checkpoint, mm-hmm. which is a good 90 miles away. And uh, the way the Border Patrol has sort of set it up, they have uh, about 30 miles of it completely covered, um, you know, the, with, the, with the checkpoint being the midpoint. So 15 miles in any direction, if, if you're there, they're going to find you. So um, you have to walk around it to avoid that, you know, quite large swath. And that means you're walking through these ranches that have really loamy, sandy soil, which you sink into. Oh, so crazy. walking those 30 miles feels a lot further. And again, this is going to be like 110 degree heat, 120 degree heat. This is not something you had any idea would actually happen to you. Um, you thought that just crossing the, the U.S.-Mexico border was the real problem. But this this is where a lot of people don't make it as well. Um, and at any point, you can be abandoned by your coyote, you can be raped by your, your coyote, you can um, get caught by the Border Patrol. The Border Patrol is really vigilant in that particular area, um, or a rancher will see you and call you in. Um, I mean, I met lots of ranchers who uh, feel, and, 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 and certainly I understand this perspective. Um, I'm not demonizing these ranchers at all. I mean, the ranchers certainly have their own beefs about this, right? Like, Right. Um, A lot of when a lot of people come across um, and are cutting through their ranch, they literally are cutting through the ranch. So um, when they come upon barbed wire fences that are in place for cattle, they will cut them with wire cutters um, and, and cattle will get through. And, you know, ranchers spend an intense amount of money trying to repair these fences and sometimes they lose their animals and. You know, so they are pretty pissed about this whole situation, very understandably. And so when they see a group of people coming through, they just call the Border Patrol in. And, and, um, and also they're worried about them, too. I mean, this, they, I imagine um, they see this as a humanitarian call because they know that the men bringing them through are probably treating them very, very poorly. So, uh, so there's just so many ways you can get caught. There's so many ways you can die, so many ways you can get injured. It's, it's a miracle that people make it through it all. Um, and then if you do manage to somehow avoid the Falfurias checkpoint, then you get in a car and you're driven to Houston. And then from there you fan out, you know, to wherever it is you want to go. And again, like when you get to Houston, you're going to be in a stash house, right? And then waiting for yet. I mean, it's just, it's, it's this epic, epic journey that is so expensive. You know, the average Guatemalan spends $5,000 making this journey and they only get two tries, you know?
1: yeah yeah yeah. and then when they come across you know um i i live in um mon in the monterey bay area and i have my my grandfather stopped here with the bracero program because he said it was Mm -hmm. it was 12 months of work because he can work in the canneries when they weren't picking in the fields Mm -hmm. um and you know nowadays the workers are they're 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 from the south americas they're not really from Mexico, at least what, what I've noticed, and working with the sort of migrant camps. And yes. uh, sometimes we take clothes and food and give rides to the migrant workers who walk up and down the road where my parents live. So mm. I see these men. And I, I tell you, after I read your book, it's so hard to see them. But I see them and I think, gosh, they had to do this they had to do this yeah and those are the men i don't even we rarely see women although once in a while we'll see a woman with her daughter or child on the corner um selling some fruit and i'm just astonished at their existence
0: it's really, it's unbelievable, yes. And now it's, um, you know, now um, it, it is true. Mexican migration has basically sort of flatlined, like almost an equal number come as, as returned. Uh, but Central American has gone through the roof. Uh, the immigration road has gone through the roof because of the takeover of so many countries in Central America by the Marisabotrucha, these really, really, really vicious criminal gangs um, that are trying to recruit I mean, children, um, essentially. And so people trying to escape that violence are, are attempting to come here. So also, when I was researching the book, um, there were like 60,000 unaccompanied minors that were coming through South Texas, um, often put in detention centers, uh, just treated terribly. So it's, it's really, it's really a disaster. And then there's also like, um, so Central Americans come; um, they often find Chinese, and it's it's always a surprise when they find Chinese, um, because they spend like sixty thousand dollars to come. Yeah. I mean, just these incredible amounts of money are are spent, and the minute you're picked up by the border patrol, you
1: know the money's the money's gone. Do you do you think like when I was living in China, one of the things that I often tried to um, sort of uh, Educate the students about was that the American dream is not necessarily the American dream and talk about all of the ways in which America was is also is difficult for people of color and people of certain classes, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how they how this exportation of our like golden lifestyle is just a facade, and my students would be so surprised because they would tell me things like, "Well, I, you have full, everything is paid for, your medicals paid for, your schools paid for, everything, your government takes care of you," and I'm like, "Where are you guys getting these ideas?" How. Huh. You know? And so I wonder I mean do you think that it's an exportation of this American dream that's drawing people to America do you, what are what are what might you you know hypothesize are the reasons or if you know the reasons why people would give up their life in their homes to come up here
0: Well you know I think that there I think it's both push and pull um and I think that for probably quite a long time it was more of a of a, of a pull, you know, there was this idea of the American dream, but I think that increasingly it is becoming more of like a push. People are being sort of pushed out of their home countries because of of absolute terror and violence. Mm. And I think that even even being aware of the obstacles they will face here in the United States, it is actually preferable, far preferable, to what the reality is where they're where they're coming from. I mean, these are refugees of of civil war, of of catastrophic climate change, of Um, and of this human-made disaster of these really, really vicious, terrible gangs. Um, You know, there's a lot of journalists now that are trying to come across because they're being treated so poorly in their own country. Um, It's, yeah. So I think think it's a combination of push and pull. And I think that, you know, you can sort of look throughout U.S. history, immigration, and, and you can kind of see, like, okay, this was more of like a pull time. But I think now we're in definitely a push time.
1: Okay, well... Thank you so much for educating me and and for talking about this. um. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at KKUP.org where we stream live all over the world. The interview tonight has been with Stephanie Elizondo Grice, but it's not over yet. She's still going to read one more section from her book for us, which is her book is All the Agents and Saints, and it's out by... um, University of North Carolina Press and it is seriously a fantastic book and I really hope that you do yourself a favor this summer and put it on your summer reading list, go out and get a copy and lay in the grass and get lost in this book because that's what I have been doing for the past month and a half. And uh, it's taking me a month and a half to read any books because if you listen to the show, you know that I have a four month old at home. Well, five months now. Um, So anyway, I just wanted to remind you guys that KKUP is the people's radio. That means that we are supported by the people. That means we don't get any grant money. We don't get any funding from any other sources except for our listeners. So if you're listening in the area, you can give us a call at 408-260-2999 if you're in the 408 area code. That's 408-260-2999. you're in the 831 area you can give us a call at 831-255-2999 and uh, again that's 831-255-2999 and um, you know poetry and uh, people talking about their books on the radio is just not as uh, prominent as it can be Of course, there are those shows on big giant radio stations, national public radio stations. But as far as keeping it in the community where you get a voice from a local person and local writers as well and uh, people who are doing really uh, working really hard to find the best um, the best sound for you out there that doesn't really happen and this show is so old it's been around uh, over 45 years and I'm have been given this gift by JP Dancing Bear to take over the show and to find new poets and new writers to interview and to bring to you and I do that all the time and it takes a lot of work but I love it and I love that you're listening so please become a member consider becoming a member of KKUP if you're listening online you can go to you you're already at KKUP cuz you're streaming this show so just go and you can become a member and support KKUP in any way that you possibly can. And check out the other radio uh, shows or the other programs on on this station because they are really fantastic. The people here do a great job to give you the best listening experience that you can have. Um, All right, so I'm going to play another song and then... At the end of the show, Stephanie Elizondo-Greist is going to read one last section of her book, All the Agents and Saints. So here we go. I'm going to mas- play some more Fabulosos Cadillacs. I hope you're enjoying it tonight. All right, here it goes. <laughs> i Can we finish this section of the discussion with you reading from page 108 um, over by the Ford? Yeah. This is from a chapter called The Choke Point.
0: Over by the Ford, Babila wipes his shoes on a patch of wisache. Got to make sure there's no bodily fluid on me because it will stink, he explains. We notice the undertaker struggling with the gurney. Babila hurries over. Together they prop it open, lay the body bag on top, strap it down, lift it up, and roll it into the back of the van. Davila introduces me to the undertaker, whose name is Anhel. I want to say how fitting and applaud his professional graces, but before I can speak, Davila tells him I'm a writer. Angel shakes his head. A lot of people write stories, he says softly. Nothing ever gets done. I hear this a lot. And though it never fails to shatter me, I usually brush it off with a self-deprecating remark and a smile. But there's just something about standing in the woods with a three-days dead woman in 95-degree heat that gives me the audacity to hope that maybe, just maybe, something will change this time. Congress will change, minds will change, policy will change, and a humane immigration law will finally be enacted. And although that hope vaporizes into idealistic mist before I can even articulate it, there remains a spark of optimism that... By virtue of being written about, this code 500 might be remembered, that even if we never know her name, or whether she's Guatemalan or Honduran, or for all we know, Chinese, this one member of the 34 who died before her and the 94 that will die after her this single year in this solitary county of this one state could be memorialized inside of a story. And at the very least, I will remember her, this woman who hiked illegally through this ranch and got annihilated for it, I will remember what remained of her feet and of her face when I try to fall asleep at night. Is it wrong, Angel, to pray this counts as something getting done? I wish to say this, all of this and a great deal more, but there is time only to feebly smile before an Angel retreats to his driver's seat where he moves a pair of badly soiled gloves. He already knows he'll be back tomorrow, and I will not.
1: That's Stephanie Elizondo Greist reading from her book, All the Agents and Saints, which is an amazing book. And I'm hoping to get Stephanie on for the second half of that show, which is the second half of her book, which deals with the U.S.-Canada borderlands. And um, thank you, Stephanie, for letting me interview you. And sorry, listeners, for all the Skype sounds that were in the background, but uh, I'm doing my best here. I'm going to play you out with some more Los Fabulosos Cadillacs and then Joe Soja will be up with conversations and then the ethnic connection. So stay tuned to KKUP and consider becoming a member. Thank you.
2: Quiero ver amanecer Pero del otro lado ver amanecer Pero que alguien se quede aquí para saber La conciencia mareada, mi vida está tan cansada, de buscar tu perdón. Vengo volando muy bajo, buscando algún claro donde descansar. Es que me vengo bandeando, me estoy cayendo de tanto esperar. Quiero ver amanecer, pero del otro lado ver amanecer. Pero que alguien se quede aquí para saber si yo sigo vivo Cielo bonito devuelve mi alma cielito yo te pido otra oportunidad Cielo no me hundas, no me desmorones cielito no me dejes sin saber la verdad Cielo bonito devuelve mi alma cielito yo te pido otra oportunidad Cielo no me hundas, no me desmorones cielito no me dejes sin saber la verdad Amanecer, pero del otro lado ver